This is episode number 197 of the Fearless Presentations podcast, the fastest, easiest way to eliminate public speaking fear. Want to absolutely eliminate public speaking fear? This podcast is the answer. Here's the guy who literally wrote the book on Fearless Presentations, Doug Stannard. Hey everybody, welcome back to Fearless Presentations. I'm Doug Stannard, CEO of the Leaders Institute, and my goal is to help you become a fearless and confident speaker and presenter. On this episode, we're going to cover a simple three-step process that you can use to win people to your way of thinking. And if you have to give a persuasive speech or if you have to give a sales presentation of some type, this is fantastic. It's an excellent three-step process. And at the end, if you stick around for the last like I don't know, seven or eight minutes or so, I'll show you how you can take this simple process and make it even more impactful by stringing a few of these things together. It's really awesome when you when you kind of get into it. Uh, by the way, the uh, it, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also make sure and leave me a comment or review if you like the podcast. Um, don't forget about our YouTube channel. It's at youtube.com slash fearless presentations online, or you can just do a search for fearless presentations on YouTube. Um, the episode is sponsored by Fearless Presentation. So if you're looking for the fastest, easiest way to reduce public speaking fear and really become a, a more persuasive speaker, like we're going to talk about on today's session, we've got two-day public speaking classes coming up in Dallas, Atlanta, Miami, Charlotte, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, Houston, and Phoenix. Those are all in the next couple of months. Um, we also have another virtual class scheduled in May. Uh, so if you didn't hear your, your city called, um, then you can check out the uh, virtual class. For, for details, just go to fearlesspresentations.com. All right, so let's get on with today's session. So on this episode, let's be honest a little bit. If, if you're trying to persuade your audience using techniques that you likely learned in school, whether that's high school or college, you will most often fail very miserably because most of the time what we're taught in school is we're taught to write a really, you know, if we want to write a really good, you know, persuasive presentation, you've got to do your research. You got to list all the pros and cons and then use lots and lots and lots of data to win over your audience. However, this technique is a terrible way to persuade people. It, it works in very, very few cases. And we're going to explain that in the first couple of minutes of this episode, I'll, I'll explain to you why that technique doesn't work very well. And it, it will make, actually make sense. Once you kind of think about it a little bit, it, it will totally make sense as to why people will tend to be kind of argumentative when we use that technique. And then uh, I'm going to show you a really simple three-step process that you can use to win people to your way of thinking, to persuade people. And then at the end, in the last couple of minutes, I'm going to show you how to kind of string a few of these together to kind of, it's a it's a technique that I call the breadcrumb approach, meaning that you kind of throw out a little bread cup, breadcrumb, let people kind of move toward you as they start to agree with you, give them something else. And then when they agree more, give them something else. So basically you're kind of leading people to your way of thinking works really, really well. So wait, wait, uh, we'll cover that in the last few minutes. Um, so most often, the technique that people use to persuade people actually causes the other person to want to play devil's advocate. They want to argue with us. Before I get into the process, though, let me kind of give you just a little bit of background and explain why the way that most of us are taught to persuade people doesn't really work. 
Um, one of the things that you have to understand is that one of the highest needs of human, human beings is to be heard and also to be understood. So when we're creating a, a persuasive presentation, it's important to remember that your audience really wants you to understand, understand them as much as you want to be understood. So most people think that a single fact is good and then additional facts are better and then too many facts are just right, that kind of thing. That's the way you see most presentations designed. So the more facts that you can use to prove your point, the better chance you have of convincing the other person that you are right. That's a huge error, by the way. It's a huge error. The, the, the big error in thinking that way is that if you prove that you're right, you're also proving that the other person is wrong. And so as a result, they will tend to be kind of argumentative. So people don't like it when somebody proves that they're wrong. So um, when, when we prove, so basically when we do prove our point that way, the other person is most likely going to feel resentment. When resentment builds, it leads to anger. And when anger enters the equation, logic kind of goes right out the window. So in addition, uh, by the way, when you use a, a fact or a statistic to prove a point, the audience has a natural reaction to kind of take a contrary side of the argument. For instance, if I started a statement with, I can prove to you beyond a doubt, before I even finish that statement, before I even add in what I can prove, you're most likely thinking that um, you've, I can think of at least one single instance where that thing is not true. That's why most of us think it's kind of natural. It's, it's human nature. So as a result, the thing that we need to realize about being persuasive is that the best way to persuade another person is to make, is to make the person want to agree with us. You know, basically present our ideas in a way to where they're not argumentative. We can do this, by the way, by showing the audience that they can get what they want if they agree with us, <laughs> which is pretty, it's, it's, a, it's a clever way to do it. It's also a very effective way to do it as well. So let me give you the three-step process to create a persuasive presentation. So um, the step number one, by the way, is when you write a, an effective persuasive speech, stories and examples are vital. <laughs> stories are a powerful way to capture an audience's attention and, then, and to really kind of set them at ease so that they actually hear our side of the argument. They, the, the stories get the audience interested in the presentation. Stories are also a great way to help your audience see the concepts that you're trying to explain in kind of a visual way. And, and it also makes an emotional connection, which is really important. So the more details that you put into your story, the more vivid those images being created in the minds of the audience members become. So by the way, the concept isn't mystical or anything. It's, it's science. You know, when we communicate effectively with another person, the purpose is to help the listener picture a concept in his or her mind that is similar to the concept that's in the speaker's mind. So the old adage is, is that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, an example or a story is a series of moving pictures. So a well-told story is, is worth thousands and thousands and thousands of words. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of facts, by the way. <laughs> so by the way, there are a few additional benefits of telling a story. Um, we we kind of covered this in the last couple of sessions, but I'll, I'll kind of reiterate a few of them just real quickly. Stories actually help you reduce nervousness. They make um, they they allow us to kind of make better eye contact when we're speaking in front of a group. Um, they they make for a strong opening when we're delivering our presentation. So if if you um, need to refresh any of the details 
about how valuable stories are, then just kind of look back at the last two or three episodes. We, we covered that in pretty good detail in the last few last few weeks. So let me give an example of how the, the two different ways that people will typically try to persuade people. The first way is the factual argument. So I'm gonna I'm gonna present something just with facts and we'll see if you if you're likely to kind of agree with it. So all right, so my my factual statement is that seatbelts save lives. So if I tell you that seatbelts save lives and, and, and I can prove that with a bunch of facts, by the way, these are actual statistics from the CDC, right? CDC, right? So 50, 53% of all motor vehicle fatalities from, uh, from last year were from people who weren't wearing seatbelts. A second fact is that people not wearing seatbelts are 30 times more likely to be ejected from the vehicle. And in a single year, Crash deaths and injuries cost us over $70 billion. So these are these are actual statistics. However, when I tell you each of these facts, you're likely to be a little skeptical, even though this came from you know, a, a prominent government organization. Uh, for instance, when you heard the, the 53% statistic, that was the first statistic that I gave, 53% of deaths were from people not wearing seatbelts. Um, you might have had the same reaction that I did when I heard that. I'm like, wait a minute, wait, 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 53%. That means that, wait, isn't that right about half? <laughs> so if if 53% of the people that died in a car accident were, were not wearing seatbelts, doesn't that mean that the other 50% or so, almost 50% of people that died in traffic accidents were wearing seatbelts? So not not even though that's a statistic it's not very persuasive um when you the the uh, the other statistic was that 30 times you know the 30 times more likely or 30 times more likely to be thrown from from your car um at that point i'm probably going to say well let me see the real 33 30 30% or 30 times what were the numbers right what were the numbers so basically what happens is the human brain starts to kind of pick at those numbers and go let's Let's see if these they poke it. Let's poke this with a pencil. <laughs> Let's see if this thing actually is is solid. And that's the way that people will do to you as well when all you're doing is just printing is presenting a a series of statistics. So let me do that a different way. Let me show you. Let me give you a a real life example and see if my example is a little bit more persuasive and also a little bit more memorable. So. This actually happened to me years ago. I was driving uh, from Abilene to Dallas, and it was pretty late in the evening, so there wasn't really a lot of traffic on on the road. Um, by the way, that the the distance or the the terrain between those two cities is pretty flat and really boring. So basically, I reached down and and um, to the the radio and was changing it, trying to find a better song. And it was only my eyes were only off the road for a couple of seconds. But when I looked up, all of a sudden there were headlights right in my in my windshield. And what had happened was an oncoming truck had actually crossed over the median and um, and ended up in my lane. Something totally unexpected. Um, and so I had I had no time to react. And and then at that point, everything just went black. And when I came to. You know, I, I kind of knew I'd been in an accident, although it took me a while to kind of gather my bearings. But I tried to open my door, but, you know, the, the um, accident had sealed it shut. And when I looked up, the windshield was entirely gone. It had just shattered. So I took off my seatbelt and I scrambled out of the, the windshield hole 
And the driver of the truck was a, he was a bloody mess. His leg had, was pinned under the steering wheel. He was screaming. Um, it took a few minutes for the firefighters to get there. And it took them like 30 minutes to cut him out. I'm sitting there watching this the whole time, cut the metal from around his body to, to kind of free him. So at that point, a sheriff's deputy kind of saw a cut on my face and he asked if I'd been in the accident. And, and at that point, that was the first time anybody talked to me in the 20 or 30 minutes that, that this had been going on. And, uh, and I kind of pointed to my truck and his eyes became like wide as saucers. He's like, you were in that vehicle? You know, apparently they had been looking for whoever was in that vehicle. They didn't realize that the guy was walking around. Right. So I nodded. And, and then of course he rushes me to the ambulance. And, and I, what had happened was I had actually ruptured my colon and, uh, and I had to go into surgery and I was down for a month or so. It was real. I mean, it was a tough recovery. It was, it was a, a serious injury, but I survived. And in fact, I, I survived with very few long-term challenges from the accident. The guy who hit me though, he wasn't so lucky. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And so the initial impact of the accident was his head on the steering wheel. And then immediately his head hit the windshield. Um, and then his leg was ruptured as well. So he had facial injuries and, and, um, reconstructive surgeries and all that kind of stuff. So he had a, he had a, um, the only reason, by the way, that he remained in his truck was that uh, was the pin leg. It kind of kept him stuck there. Uh, so for me, the accident was kind of a temporary trauma and it was serious, but for him, it was, a, it's most likely was a, a lifelong tragedy. So when you think about those two different versions, one that was all factual and one that was that was a story, and, and by the way, you don't have to give us that many details in your story, but what I was trying to try to get across to you is that when you put a lot of details in there, it's like you're painting a picture in, in the minds of the people that are in your audience. So these are the two major differences between those two techniques. The story gives you lots of memorable details along with an emotion that really kind of captures you as the audience member. So we're going to test that theory here without rewinding the audio. How long did it take the firefighter to cut the other driver from the car? It's a good chance you probably came up with it. Here's another one. Like what, what major city was I traveling to? And actually what minor city was I coming from for that matter? So there's a good chance that that data, the, the answer to those questions kind of popped into your head. You probably remember that it took about 30 minutes to cut the guy out of the car. You probably remember that I was going to driving to Dallas. You probably remembered you might, this one might be a little bit more difficult, but you might've remembered that I was coming from Abilene, Texas. So if, if you were, if you, you, you probably remember those things because, um, because they were told in a story format, even though that data, those facts, those figures, those names, they weren't really relevant to the story, but you still kind of remember them, right? If you, if in contrast, if I asked you how much money was lost last year as a result of traffic accidents, you might kind of struggle to remember that particular statistic. I covered it, but I covered it in the statistic you know, about 10 minutes ago, right? So um, the city and the firefighter time, those are part of the compelling story that made you pay attention. The money loss to accidents was just a statistic that was kind of thrown out to try to prove a point. You, you know, but it was true, but but most likely you probably don't even remember that. So the main benefit of using a story, though, is that when we give statistics without a story to back them up, the audience becomes argumentative. <laughs> However, when we tell a story, the audience can't really argue with us. The audience can't come to me and after my presentation and say um, and say it did not take 30 minutes to cut that guy out of, the, out of his truck. 
he didn't have a bunch of reconstructive surgeries. That deputy didn't say that deputy didn't say those things to you. The, the audience can't argue with me about the details of that story because they weren't there. I was right. So basically, it makes the audience member less argumentative when we present facts in, in that format. So basically, once you come up with that with that story, that's step number one is to come up with a really compelling story, an interesting story. Step number two is after the story, now give your opinion, now give your advice. If you start off with your advice or your opinion, most likely people are going to become argumentative, start off with a story. And then at the end of your story, tell them what you want to believe or, or the opinion that you have. They're more likely to kind of remember what you said, because when most people write a persuasive presentation, they start with their opinion. <laughs> Again, that makes the listener want to play devil's advocate. So by starting with the example, instead, we give the listener a simple way to agree with us. So they can agree with us that that story occurred. It's very hard for them to disagree with us that that story occurred, right? So the uh, so so now just finish with the point of of your of your story or the opinion. So in my opinion, if you wear a seatbelt, you're more likely to avoid a serious injury and a severe crash. It's easy now for somebody to agree with that because of the the story that I told. By the way, this technique is not is not new. I mean, I didn't create this. This has been around for thousands of years. You know, Aesop. The guy who wrote the, the fables, a Greek slave over 500 years ago, or 500 years before Christ, actually, BC, he, um, his stories were passed down verbally for hundreds of years before anyone ever wrote them down in a collection. Today, when you read an Aesop fable, you'll get um, 30 seconds to um, maybe two minutes of a story first. And then at the conclusion, almost as a postscript, you'll get the advice. So most often the advice is going to come in the form of the moral of the story is, right? So you want to do the same type of thing with your persuasive presentation. Spend most of the time on the details of the story, then just a few seconds at the end with your with your moral of the story. And then the third thing, this is really the, the more important thing too. So once you kind of tell your story as part one, step two, give them the moral of the story. And step three, tell the audience how they're going to benefit from agreeing with you. So the story really captures and holds the attention of the audience. The moral of the story reinforces what conclusion you want the audience to draw. Well, the final part of the process is to tell the audience how they're going to get what they want if they agree with you. So remember that the audience is self-centered. You know, we all are. So if you if you focus on how the audience will benefit from the advice, then you'll show them how how they get what they want, and, and that's going to be in line with what you want as well. So the moral of the story is to wear your seatbelt. And if you do that, you'll be able to avoid being cut out of your car and endless reconstructive surgeries. So, so basically, there's a benefit to wearing your seatbelt. Now, instead of leaving your audience wanting to argue with you, they're more likely to be thinking, man, I don't want to get cut out of my car, and I really don't want a bunch of facial surgeries. So the, so the process is really simple. However, it's also very, very powerful. Now, the cool thing about this technique is that you can use this over and over again to, um, to, to win people toward your way of thinking. So you can give them something very simple and easy to agree with and then give them something else to agree with and then give them something else to agree with. So once you understand this three-step process, you can create a very powerful, persuasive speech 
by just linking a series of these persuasive stories together. By the way, this is the technique that we teach people how to do um, backward and forwards uh, in our two-day public speaking class. Works really, really well. Um, it's, I mean, it works pretty much 100% of the time, really, really effective. So I, I call this the breadcrumb strategy and maybe I should change it because I, I remember when I was a kid, uh, watching um, the movie E.T., you know, I, I don't even know if that you can even still watch that that movie anymore. But back then, back when I was a kid, it was like the biggest thing ever. Right. So in that movie, Elliot, the kid who actually finds the extraterrestrial E.T., um, he doesn't go and try to trap him. He doesn't try to, to go run after him, because if he did, the, the alien's just going to hide. Right. Instead, what he does is he lays down Reese's Pieces <laughs> and he makes a trail. And E.T. kind of follows the trail and then shows up in the kid's bedroom with the handful of, of Reese's Pieces. Basically, that's the technique that we want to use when we're trying to persuade people. You don't want to chase people and push them away. What you want them to do is start moving toward you. So basically, by stringing a series of these stories together, it kind of helps do that. Do that. Every time you, you um, tell one of these stories um, in, in, in a way that's, that's easy for them to agree with you, it moves the, uh, the audience ultimately closer to the conclusion that you want them to draw. Each story gains just a little bit more agreement. So first, you give a very simple story about an easy-to-agree-with concept. Then, once you gain agreement, that's fairly easy to do if, it's, if you choose the right point to cover first, you also create that emotional appeal. So next, you use an additional story to gain additional agreement. And if you use this process three or four times, then you're more likely to get the audience to agree with your final conclusion. Um, if, if this is a formal presentation, you just make your main points into persuasive statements and, and then use stories to reinforce your points. So here's a, 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 a persuasive speech example that you can that we can use to to kind of show you how this worked. Now keep in mind that I purposefully picked a controversial topic. So if you don't agree with me on this, it's fine. You know, it's not it's fine. Um, and in fact, I probably don't even agree with everything that I'm going to say here. But I'm going to show you how even if it's a controversial topic, even if it's something that that um, is uh, maybe even political or something like that. If we present the argument in a specific way with the examples and stories, it's a little bit easier for people to at least hear us. They may not agree with us, but at least they're, they're going to hear us. So here's the statement, right? So the statement is that marijuana legalization is causing huge problems in big cities. So I'll give you a few examples of, of some of the things that I found in my research. Um, number one, Homelessness is kind of out of control in the first states that legalize marijuana. Um, I'll give you a good example of this. Last year, my family and I took a little mini vacation to Colorado Springs. Uh, I used to live in Colorado, love the state. It's a fantastic place. Um, in fact, I, I spent uh, a summer there when I was in college on an internship. And so I wanted to kind of have my family see, have, have that experience. It was, you know, I had a fantastic time when I was there uh, younger, you know, in my 20s. Um, so we were we were only there for four days, but we noticed something really dramatic had happened in the time since I'd been there last. There were homeless people everywhere. Now, keep in mind that this wasn't Denver. This wasn't the big city, Denver. This was Colorado Springs. And the picturesque landscape was clouded by ripped sleeping bags on the street corners and trash was spread everywhere. Pretty nasty, actually. Um, we were downtown and my wife and daughter wanted to go shopping. So 
my son and I found a, a comic book store across the street to kind of browse in. And as we were coming out, we we almost bumped into a, 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 a like just a dirty old guy in torn clothes. Um, yeah, I mean, he smiled at us and he walked a few feet away from the door and lit up a joint. <laughs> and then and then he sat on his corner smoking it. And and my son and I, I had we walked you know the quarter mile back to the store where we left my wife and daughter. And we as we were doing that, we stepped over and walked around about a about a dozen homeless people camped out right in the middle of town, right in the middle of the, the city, the city sidewalks. So um, this was not the Colorado that I remember, you know, from from what I've heard, it's gotten even worse in, in the last year or so that since we've been there. So if you don't want to dramatically increase your homeless population, it's probably not a good idea to legalize marijuana in your state. Um, the second thing that the second um piece of data or the second second point is that DUI or DWI instances and traffic traffic accidents have increased dramatically in the, the first states to legalize marijuana. Um, I was at the airport waiting for a flight last week and and the guy next to me offered me his newspaper. I didn't even know that I haven't read a newspaper in years. I, I didn't even know they still made newspapers, to, to be honest, but he seemed so nice that I accepted it. And it was a copy of the USA Today, and it was open to an article about the rise in unintended consequences from legalizing marijuana. So um, safety officials and police in it, the states were uh, Colorado, Nevada, Washington, and Oregon, uh, which were the first four states to legalize rec recreational marijuana, have reported a 6% increase in traffic accidents in, in the last few years. Now, although the increase, 6%, doesn't seem very dramatic, it, it was notable because the rate of accidents had been decreasing in each of those states in the decades prior. So year after year after year, the number of accidents had been dropping. And for the first time, now all of a sudden, those those um, the, the numbers had had kind of switched. So assuming that the only that only um, one of the two parties involved in in the new accident in in these new accidents was under the influence, that means that the people who aren't smoking marijuana are being negatively affected by this legalization. Um, so basically, if somebody there are a lot of times there's two different parties involved in the accident and. And uh, if the accident was caused by people driving under the influence, then now all of a sudden uh, the people who who uh, are not partaking are, are, are at a higher risk. So if you don't want to increase your, your chances of being, being involved in a DUI incident, basically don't legalize marijuana. Um, now notice that in that, let me kind of pause a little bit in the, in the delivery here, because you'll notice that. I used an article as my evidence, but I made it more memorable because I told you the story about how I came across the article. It, it's also easier to deliver that type of data because I'm just relaying what I remember about reading the article. I'm not trying to be an expert on that data myself. So that that takes a lot of stress off of the presenter when, when you deliver data that way. Uh, so the third thing that is important is that marijuana is still really largely unregulated. So even in some of these states, it's it's not um, it's not regulated very effectively. Um, I'll give you a good example, totally unrelated to kind of marijuana, and kind of show how even when something's really really regulated, it, there can still be challenges. So just before my dad went into hospice, um, he was he was in a lot of pain the last couple of years. Really, he was uh, he was in a lot of pain. Um, 
So he took a prescription painkiller before bed just so he was able to go to sleep. One night, my mom called me. She was frantic. Um, My dad was in this catatonic state and he wasn't responsive. I mean, she really thought he was about to die. So I rushed over to their house um, and we took my dad to the hospital. And at the hospital, we found out that he had an unusually high amount of the painkillers in his bloodstream. And um, what had happened was his regular doctor had been on vacation and the fill-in doctor had prescribed um, what he thought w- was the same dosage that of, of that narcotic that my dad had been given, but it was actually a much higher dosage of the, of the, of the painkiller. So like, for instance, his original prescription was just 2.5 milligrams and the new prescription was 10 milligrams. So since my dad was in a lot of pain, most nights he always took two tablets, which would have been five milligrams. Um, and, and at the time, my dad, by the way, he was on dialysis. So his kidneys weren't really filtering out the excess narcotic each day. So the, every, the, 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 the couple of days before he, he had this catatonic incident, he had actually taken 20 milligrams a day instead of five. So he's taken four times the amount of the narcotic. Um, and he did that on Friday night. And then on Saturday, didn't have dialysis because dialysis was on Monday. So um, at ordinarily he would have had at max 15 milligrams of the narcotic in the system, but because of this mistake, he had um, 60 milligrams. So my point is, is that narcotics that the, 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 this particular narcotic that my dad was taking was prescri- it was prescribed and, and it was very highly regulated and he was under a doctor's care. And a mistake was still made that almost killed him. With marijuana, there's really no way of knowing how much narcotic is in each one of these dosages. So mistakes like this are going to be much more more likely. So in conclusion, legalizing marijuana can increase homelessness, increase the number of impaired drivers, and also cause accidental overdoses. So basically, what I'm doing there is I'm using the breadcrumb approach. Now, again, like I picked something that was pretty controversial. You don't have to believe that um, uh, the or, or agree with me. Um, and like I said, I don't even know if I agree with everything I just said there. But I'm showing you how by using the examples, it's easy for after you kind of hear those stories to go, okay, yeah, that does actually. I can see his point. I can, I, I see how that makes sense. So the breadcrumb approach is like to get, at least get a little agreement, even if you don't agree agree totally with what I said, even if the person disagrees with the conclusion, you're still likely to to get them to at least see your side without being argumentative. And that's really the the key to being persuasive. So hopefully this is really helpful for you. Uh, By the way, if you want details about about some real life examples, ways to actually put this type of stuff into practice, then our two-day public speaking classes can be really, really helpful. So if you're in sales or if you have to get persuasive presentations, or if you have audiences that that tend to be fairly difficult to deliver presentations to, then our classes can be very helpful to you. All right. So hopefully, hopefully this was very helpful to you. And uh, we'll see you next week on the Fearless Presentations podcast. Bye, y'all. Subscribe to this podcast for new public speaking secrets each week. 